Welcome to the Les Spellman Podcast, where we redefine how athletes develop speed by giving them the tools to play faster. All right, so we're back, part two. Um, everyone loved the podcast that we did, just talking about combine training, how we're doing it, what week we're in, um, you know, and we figured we might as well come back and talk about more. But before we do that, I really wanted to talk about some things outside, uh, really outside the lines and just kind of look at our culture in the SNC space as a whole. Um, you know, one thing I've been thinking about is just how unilateral our uh, our culture can be. It, we tend to kind of find the people that agree with us or look into the articles that make the most sense to us or study the things that we like. And at times, uh, a lot of us are afraid to try new things. And that's something that Taylor and I have always talked about is like experimenting, trying new things um, and actually implementing them and, and actually doing it. Um, Tay, do you want to talk a little bit about some of that, some new things you've tried, whether it's this year or before? I think as we've learned and as I've progressed as a coach, um, it's not necessarily that it's new things. Like I don't think we've ever reinvented the wheel, um, but trying new things uh, as far as like you can't hold on to one. You can't say, I learned this, this is how I do it, and this is how I'm going to go because there's prevailing research that's consistently coming out. So as you go, I'll try to say that my trajectory will remain the same if I am able to change it. Yeah. So you have to have a practice of learning to forget certain things or understanding where things lead to how things progress. So if you learn one system and it doesn't progress, then I think it remains stagnant. Um, you have to continue to learn. You have to continue to grow and you have to continue to question things that you've always hold or like, all right, this is my value system. Well, I'm not going to switch my values often, but I'm going to make sure that I can maintain my values by switching the methods. Yeah. So if I said that, if I had said right now that my methodology is the same as in was it was when it was 2013, a decade ago when I came in a game, is, is my methodology the same? Absolutely not. It changes all the time. And it comes with coaches. When you meet coaches and you work with people that are higher level, you start to gauge yourself against them or, or kind of shoot ideas back and forth and you can kind of use them as a sounding board. And so I've had people in my life that have, you know, I presented my ideas like, hey, this is how I feel. And they kind of came back and say, why do you feel that way? Like, okay, cool. So when I'm presenting these ideas, it should be rebuked, right? There should We should have the ability to, to look at it. Like the sand hill, like the sand hill. Like, right. so <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Right. Okay. <laughs> I think the sand hill is a great character building exercise. Yeah, edit, edit, edit colors. <laughs> All right, we'll edit that out. Um, Coach, sand hill is great. No, but we're not going to debate that. I'm not saying that. Um, no, it's it's interesting because like, yeah, delete it. <laughs> no, it's interesting because in acceleration, there's been like a a model how people accelerate not talk about pistons torso angle and what happened was all these coaches started fitting everyone into a box so like, you're supposed to have your angle at this and your shin's supposed to be at this angle and your body's supposed to be this angle what happened was like it doesn't work for everyone right so like think about last year we have like icky eden boy like all three of those guys were very different accelerators and what i learned last year and some of some of this year is like Fitting people into that box doesn't work. So Stu McMillan posted something on Twitter and it was this guy accelerating and like he had not the optimal technique that you would see from textbooks, essentially. And people were ripping it apart, like, oh, he's cycling, oh, he's doing this. If he did this, he'd be faster. 
And then Stu commented and said, this guy just won world championships at 649. It was like the fastest 60 meter in, in you know, the past 10 years. I don't know. That, that may be wrong in terms of track times. I don't, I don't remember exactly what it was, but um, it was fast. So it's like, if he, if he's fast, by by changing his technique, are we going to get faster? Or what is it? So like, when from my side, it's always like, what does it take to run fast? And if there's five principles, those five principles might change according to the research that comes out or the insight we might we might get. And now I'm starting to see on the strength side, like how those things correlate and how those things go in. Um, and I think right now, you know, probably the next segue is looking at just how we're going, really entering into something we call the valley. And the valley is like, basically when you're you're super compensating, you, you basically stress them enough to the point where their bodies are like, okay, you know, we're, we, we need to back off a little bit. Like our, our nervous system is fried. We need to back off. Let's, let's relax a little bit. That's starting to activate. We call that the valley because times start getting stagnant or actually worse during a certain period of time. And then guys don't feel good. You get a little moodiness. Um, we call it the valley because it's, it's a piece of the road, but we actually climb back up and then, you know, we, we reach our, our goal. So Tay, do you want to talk a little bit about what we're doing in the valley or how we're even inducing the valley or why it's important well so for the first couple of weeks um you know we're really just trying to groove a pattern and get people set up with their work capacity like we kind of talked about through the first two weeks was really focused on work capacity we use clusters we use time and attention and use these some eccentrics now for the for the next two weeks it's all about increasing load and increasing intensity that doesn't necessarily mean that we're increasing the speed yet or the speed of the movement because we've actually been decreasing or decreasing the speed in terms of meters per second with our with our lifting specifically. Um, the speed and, and the 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 speed on the field seems to have gone up. Yeah. And the speed in the weight room is going down so that the rate of force development speeds up. Yeah. And the ground reaction forces start to kind of increase. Um so co- faster contact times, faster speeds. Which I was not expecting through week four, but we had our fastest day today. And it was still like 95% there, but they're still running fast, but continue. Yeah. So, um, you know, when we recognize that, when we recognize, hey, even though they're, they're getting some adaptation already, like I was telling you that when I made my calculations for what the list should have been, I just added 20 pounds onto the, the calculation of how much I should increase. I was like, you know what? I could probably bump them a little bit more. And they all crushed the numbers. Yeah. So their body is starting to really adapt. And you can tell that their their mind hasn't necessarily caught up. They're, they don't feel that they have control the way that they do. Right. And that comes with a little bit of rest. Now, since it is a condensed process, there is no rest that we can give them necessarily, except if I can deload them by increasing the speed. Mm-hmm. So next week, when I have a little bit of... No, freedom with some of the guys being gone so we have a little bit more one-on-one attention with with some of the guys that we have um what we can do is really try to increase the speed and if i say like hey keep this bar above 1.0 meters per second that's going to limit them to maybe 50 percent of their maximum yeah right so it's not deloading them they're not they're not going away from the focus of moving weight fast but what they're doing is we're auto-regulating their ability to go heavy by setting a speed higher than they want to go. Yeah. They're now used to that 0.6, right? We, we, we spent that first week at 0.8, we went down to 0.6, and then we did 0.6 with chains, 0.6 with bands, 
Yeah. And now I want to jump it back up. So I want to start to, I want to get back to a new 1.0. So I want to take that 0.8 that we had before the loads that we were using from the, the first week and try to really move that at a faster, faster speed so that I can essentially make your 65 is now your 50, right? And so by increasing the maximum, every sub-maximal effort is increased. So that's why we wanted to push towards maximal effort when we, you know, I wanted to work towards 75, work towards 80, get to 85, get to 90. And they were asking me, it's like, hey, is it okay if I'm getting 0.3 and 0.4 meters per second? I, I told them at the end of the lift, like, that was actually, yeah, I told you 0.6 because I know you're going to push. But, you know, if I told you 0.3, are you going to get 0.1? I don't want sale reps. Sure. So I told them an 80% threshold and they got 85, 90 on their own. That's fine. That's what it wanted. Yeah. Especially for potentiation complexes like we did today. However, using something heavy first above 85% and then down something at 50 to 55%. So they're now getting used to moving fast load using or using heavy load fast and then using a light load faster. Yeah. So I'm literally trying to double the speed or double the average speed. So the average speed would be 0.6 and with heavy lift and then 1.2 average. Uh, but since it's a ballistic movement, we are measuring it in a uh, peak velocity. So it was at 2.5 or above. Um, so in doing that now, next week when we go, they already know what it feels like to move fast. So we introduced it in week four while they're really dipping, dipping, dipping into the valley. And as they start to come back out, as they even, they've already started to come back out of it. Now we're keeping it light, keeping it light, keeping it light yeah. so that they really start to feel the increase of the speed. Yeah. Uh, and then once we get used to that speed, then I can drop it back down at the point eight and point six because we do have to hit a maximum strength number in week six again. Yeah. So it's this little quick rise and then back dip into the heavy before we get into the more reactive speed strength. Yeah. No, it's interesting because like we're about halfway through right now. So this is the end of week four and there's about eight and a half. It's, it's really nine weeks if you count the combine week, which we do count because that, that is a training week still. Like when we're at the combine, you've probably seen the videos of us. Not all of them, so. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it's a real week. So on my side, I'd take three weeks to really, to really build their acceleration profile. So there's a lot of heavy chains. There's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of bilateral jumping. There's a lot of drills. There's a lot of things that are teaching. And by the time we get to week four, now we're starting to expose them to more velocity. Because if you think about it, if I go heavy chains, the adaptation from the heavy chains is going to take me about four weeks. So if I dive into week five, week six, really, really, really heavy, I will see that adaptation to week 10, essentially. So what I'm doing, um, taking Taylor's understanding of how he's wave loading everything, I'm really building the acceleration. So I'm really building their start in the beginning part of the, the training. And then I'm adding on velocity progressively as we go. So like guys are like, man, I'm running faster every time I get out there. And it's actually true. They really are running faster, but it's because we're allowing them to be exposed to higher velocity zones. So what I mean by that is I'm giving them different fly zones that allow them to reach different percentages of their max. So I know like a couple of our guys are at 22 miles per hour. If I were to really let them go and race, they could hit 22. But week one, we really, we really gave them an intensity zone that only allowed them to get to like 19.5. Then we got to about 20, then 20.5, then 21, and now 21.5. And next week, they all have to basically, if they don't hit their goal, which is 22 miles per hour, they have to wear their rival school shirt for a week. So if you guys see it on Instagram and they're wearing those, like the Michigan guys are in the Ohio State shirt, the Minnesota guys wearing the Wisconsin shirt, whatever. Um, it's because they haven't hit their velocities, but I'm confident they will 
because as we're as we're going through the weight room uh and you know the weight room's getting more reactive it's getting higher velocities and moving weight faster what's happening is they're actually allowing it's actually allowing them to hit faster contact times and essentially the way that we look at it if you were to break speed down into like the two ways the simplest form that people talked about 20 years ago stride length and stride frequency uh what we're really doing is allowing them to get a faster stride frequency by increasing uh, their ability to decrease their contact time essentially so they're decreasing contact time while either maintaining or increasing their stride length um so like a lot of times people are like let's just pull in one lever or the other but we really want to maintain whatever they're strong at and uh and then work on whatever they're weak at and try to build it up and that's how we get to new velocities um, so that's what we're, that's the phase we're in now. So next week, we're actually going to go into uh, a lot more reactive work. So the heavy chains are done. It's more power work. It's more repeat, repeat jumps and bounding. It's longer accelerations. Um, we actually have some race modeling stuff. Like, and, and by race modeling, I mean like they're actually running the 40, but maybe not intensity throughout the entire 40. So maybe they're running a 15-yard intensity zone, and then they're finishing or 20-yard intensity zone. And they're finishing. Um, and we have some guys that are pretty resilient. So we will actually run 40s. Like last year, we didn't run 40s until, I don't know, week seven, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and we had big guys. We had, you know, big guys or guys that weren't as resilient as, as they started out because they're coming off of rough seasons. But these guys can go. So they, they will run 40s. Like, you know, I don't believe in any absolutes. Like I've said, hey, we're not running any 40s before. I've said that in, during draft training. I've also said, sure, we'll run one day one, maybe week three, maybe week five. Like it does, it's 40 yards. Like it, you guys, guys can run that, you know? So I hear, I hear coaches talk all the time, like we'll never run the 40. But I think that's anytime you say like, I'll never do something, you're, you're going to be wrong at some point because you're going to bump into a couple of guys like we have that can, can run all day and, and they're used to that type of workload. So guys will get exposed to that. And as they're doing it, they're increasingly going to be more comfortable at relaxing at higher velocities. So like next week, their goal is to run 22, like I said, but they should run 21 the easy way, which means they should run 21 miles per hour relaxed over wickets or in a buildup and 22 the hard way. So I say the hard way is like you're running from the cops, you're racing, like it, you have, you have some tension in there. Uh, and it's finding that balance. Like guys right now are figuring out that. If I want, if I run super tense, then I can't run fast. I can't be powerful. Um, but if I if I run too relaxed, then it's like, well, they're 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 too far off the zone. So it's interesting marrying up the speed and the strength because I have to have confidence that what Tay's doing on the strength side is going to allow them super compensate back up on week seven. So there's times where I'm pulling back on my sessions because I know that they're heavily loaded and that they're going to get a lot more out the weight room. And understanding how that physical load can help the guys run faster. It's it's a confidence. We have to trust each other on this. So like I've noticed that Tay's taking more plyometric volume, more reactive plyos. That's perfect. So I can take them out of my session, make my session highly focused on just running fast and, and very fast and then pull them out. Like today, it was like a long warm up in like 15 minutes of work, but it was high, high, high intensity. Um so yeah, Tay, uh, going on that on that trend, as we come down the mountain, what what do you expect on like week six and seven? Like, how do you think guys are going to feel week six, week seven? Well, 
Um, I think that I think that week six or seven is is you're starting to get into like a pre-realization phase where guys are actually starting to understand how strong they are, how well they can move their body. And this is kind of the cue that I've been giving on the field is like, look, keep that stride, like keep that frequency, mm-hmm. but don't try so hard to produce the force because you can produce that force faster. Yeah, it's just it's just get to your get to your context, get to your speed. And, but I wanted to touch on, I was like, if we could take a step back to where you were saying about acceleration yeah. and how important resistance is. Let's talk about deceleration yeah. and, and how they've been able to, that we've seen the progression from the way that these guys are actually changing direction. Yeah, 100%. And really, that is where I see so much of the strength play a role, mm-hmm. is these guys couldn't even get into their position from week one. Yeah. And that's where I've seen the biggest increase is seeing their body position, uh, the lean, the angles, and their ability to to stop as much momentum. Yeah. So they're projecting out into these five yard breaks and these five yard stops, and and working on the five ten five at Elko. And I think that the stripe really been helping with their positions and their and the positional isometrics and the things that we've been working on. Yeah. The they really show that you know their ability to accelerate, their ability to decelerate mm-hmm. is is really being increased. So the things that I'm seeing in, in week six and seven is not only just running more comfortable, being able to produce that same amount of force while running relaxed and, and being able to attack the ground and having confidence within that, but also finally getting to full speed with their change of direction work, yeah. trusting their yeah. rakes and being able to go full speed into a cut and, and not needing to even think about where their feet are or need to think about how their body is aligned because we, we kind of took the pieces of each thing just like you did with the how how we work our you know first projection step first four steps first seven steps first 15 steps mm-hmm. first 15 yards first 20 yards yeah. and, and coasting out so we've taken that 40 and, and broken it into sections and the same thing we do with the elk on the 575 break break up the, the third turn break up the second turn break up the first turn mm-hmm. like so really taking the pieces of the movement and then placing them in certain positions at certain intensities so that when we really start to put it together that dance really starts to show that the, that the practice is really starting to align with how they apply yeah yeah 100 percent. it's funny because now like you look at how guys run 20 miles per hour now versus the beginning so it was like guys would really have to try to run 20 miles per hour and now guys are like warming up running 20 and it's just coasting it's like super easy for them to run. And I think towards the end, I think week, week, week six, week seven, we'll see most of our skill guys run 22 that same way. Very relaxed, very easy. And they'll run 23 the hard way. If you, if you want to run 4-4, four, four, you're going to have to run 23 miles per hour. Like, I don't know too many guys that run 4-4 four, four at 22. It's possible if you have an amazing start. But just to be safe, if a guy's like, Coach, I want to run four four. Like we have to get in the twenty threes. Um, you have to have that velocity potential. So I know that the process, like as they're loaded, it, it's going to be hard for them to run that twenty three. They might only reach twenty three at the combine, which is which is difficult. But I know if you're if you're within like let's say point two point three miles per hour away from there, you can probably get there. But one thing that's interesting, like when I look at combine training, like a couple years ago versus now. Um, I think guys are starting to become more comfortable with stressing and I, you don't see adaptations without stress. And it, it's been, you know, kind of like the track mindset when we first started doing combine training where everyone was like, 
the high low method, like keep the high days high and keep the low days low. And, and low means like don't do anything, just kind of like walk through stuff. And you would only stress them so much. But what I saw from that method was there wasn't enough stress within that eight weeks to produce adaptation. So fast guys ran fast, slow guys ran slow, but you didn't see changes in the athlete and they weren't resilient enough. Like I remember being scared to run guys in a fly 20. Today I was like, do whatever you want. Like you guys can go as fast as you want from as far as you want. And I had no fear because I know the guys are resilient based around the work that we've done, based around the gradual progression of volume and intensity throughout. So like we didn't start off with, you know, 3,000 yards. Today, today we probably hit about 2,200 yards total, including skill work. But that's because we progressed 10% per week, which is still aggressive, but we progressed. And we also progressed the intensity. So their high-speed yardage gradually increased 5 to 10% per week and now they're able to handle it so I know if I stay within the bounds of that they're fine um but a lot of times it's kind of like how we see on social media now where um you know that it, it, people are afraid of stress in any in any form and it, when you remove all the stress when you experience that stress it's going to shock you and it's going to it's going to hurt you and the same in training like we know that we have to get high velocities out of the guys. So if we go through training, we don't get high velocities, we don't get yardage, we don't get this intensity, then they're not going to be able to run fast when they're when their bodies, you know, you know, asking them to run fast at the end of the week during the combat. So we have to make sure that stress is constant. And we know if we do it early and often, that means when we do back off, the body's going to start to recognize that as like, okay, this is a time where I can push and I can go. And they're going to have that capacity. And it's a small window. So like, I remember even when we started just talking about peaking, like we would, we would basically stop running like 10 days out and we would do massages and like, it was like no stress at all. And then we would try to ramp them back up and it, it failed. Like it, it just didn't, it didn't work. I think it works if you're an Olympic track athlete and you've been training three and a half years, four years, and you go into Olympic competition and you pull back for 10 days, it's not a big deal, but pulling back 10 days in a, you know, I don't even not 75 day program not even it's like 70 days it's not and that's a high percentage of days so we keep stress all the way through so that last week at the combine week nine we're still stressing them we're still ramping up to high velocities we're still accelerating we're still jumping this year we're gonna lift because we're getting we're getting a, a lifting platform in in our facility um so we don't actually remove any of the components. So when we talked about vertical integration with Tony Holler, we talked about all components being present at the same time. So we don't actually remove anything, but they just exist in different quantities. So the jumping volume, that's probably not going to be, oh, there's not going to be a lot of jumping volume week nine, week eight. Um, but the intensity will be there. There will be jumps or high speed sprinting. There's not going to be a lot of high speed sprinting volume week eight, week nine but it will exist. Guys will still ramp up to 90 to 100% of their max speed. Um, strength, like we're, we're not going to pull back completely. They still will touch something um, and, and move it fast. So it's it's interesting now how, you know, we took a lot of risk in, in looking at these methods. I know last year was kind of like a test trial and then this year while they're in it, but we, we took a lot of risk in looking at things really from a new perspective and a broad perspective and looking at research what is research actually telling us? Because there, there's plenty of guys you can go to and say, well, this is how you do combine training. And you open up a book and it's like, do this drill in this much quantity, whatever. I don't care how much programming we do. We're still going to look at every week and take a red pen and change things. 
Um, so yeah, Tay, like, what, let's talk about that. Like, what have you changed? Like, or is being said that I changed? Yeah, what have you changed? What happened? I changed. I changed something. I changed something on a daily basis. I changed something on a weekly basis. Like, I come in, like, obviously, I have nine weeks planned out when we start and for like a template though the, yeah for the template for the template and you know i, I feel bad because i send out the template in, in the beginning and so everyone has the program but by the time it's on paper it's it's very different yeah um so every day i'm looking at things i'm talking to you i'm seeing how guys are feeling i'm looking at your plan your program your progression we're editing in iso looking at how recovered these guys are how they're feeling how to modify things you know, and I've explained it to people that we'll we'll take a longer road or we'll take a different road to get to the same result. Yeah, and because you know, it, and I'm not a stranger to methods that like there are, there are so many methods that work, and which ones are we? There is a method that we planned on, but you know, if, if there's a curveball, you're ha- you're gonna have to still get to that end result. Yeah, and that's and that's going to be the main focus. Is like, all right, well, we're going to use and employ whatever strategy it takes to get to the end goal. Um, and I think that it's really important to be able to adapt like that. And our biggest thing is, is adaptability. So, um, I've always explained to something like, like we adapt very well. We come in with a plan. We're always going to have, we're always going to have a plan in place, but most of the time that plan is going to change. Yeah. And, and throughout the process, what happened? I changed that. I've looked at different angles and, and given people specific exercise based on Let's say, you know, like their ankle was the the problem on a force plate. Yeah. Their program is then shifted towards ankle stability or tension during certain movements. Yeah. And those certain movements should translate to what we're doing on the field. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, we talked about, is it is it enough stress? Like you have, if you're looking at it in total, 24 times to run. Mm-hmm. You have 24 sessions that you're going to be able to run fast. Yeah. And half of that, or let's say you have eight sessions of acceleration, you have eight sessions of working on your top speed, and then you have your special speed. Yeah. Yeah. It's really only eight, eight new top speeds, and they should progressively get faster. It's eight times, it's eight times that I get to work on the five ten five, And so there's just different progression. It's eight times that I get to work on the LCO. And I'm a huge proponent of like, people can be stressed a whole lot more than people have been stressed. Yeah. And I think that you can see it in, uh, you know, one of the things that you've been noticing in the industry is that coaches with these new methods and these new and the new research that that keeps coming out, we're using shit that has been used for decades, and we're doing it confidently. Yeah, in a way that we're starting to realize that it's like for some reason we went away from bilateral strength. We went away from when we're test exercises. Yeah, you know what I hear a lot is like, oh, well, you could use a medicine ball to, to teach a hand clean. Like, okay, to teach it, yes. To teach components of it, yes. To display force in that same type of capacity, yes. Mm-hmm. But it's not a substitute for the anchor. You're right. And us as a strength professional, it's up to us to put people in positions that could be considered dangerous in a safe environment. So it's a safe and effective environment. Like, I'm not going to put someone, like, if, if, if you have a premium on your wrist, like, it's, say, basketball players, a deep lineman, like, do I need you to catch a hand clean? Absolutely not. Specifically because I can actually produce more force with a clean pull. But if you prefer to catch it, then you can catch it, right? So those, those are things that, but I'm not going to shy away from a hand clean because someone said it's dangerous. I'm not going to shy away from any exercise because it's dangerous. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to do anything stupid. Like I don't have any, I don't have instability while working on power. Yeah, I'm not doing speed in the sand. But uh, what I am trying to do is do the most effective bang for your buck and, and 
really just what's the least amount that I can get the most effect from. Yeah. Well, I think part of our industry right now is people are so afraid to um, be judged by others. So like if they put something on Twitter, people are like, well, why are you hand cleaning? And they're, they're afraid of that banter. But like, it, that's a that's a detriment to our to our field, and I think if you look at our field compared to some of the other fields, like um, our our growth is is hindered by people being afraid to share or talk about things or being stuck like not stuck to a method, but standing behind a method, like like heavy sled training. And when I started doing heavy sled training, I had like trolls in my inbox every day. I saw those same dudes posting it the other day, or when I talked about force velocity profiling, I had guys saying like it doesn't exist or it's whatever. And then those same guys are endorsing companies that, that do that. So it's like, if you care about what everyone says, it, it's really going to, it's really going to drive you into the ground and you're not going to, you're not going to grow. Like your methods might work with your population and you just got to ride with it. And like, I've seen a lot of people shy away from this industry because of the two to three people that might talk trash. And I said this the other day, I was like, they can't fight. I promise you. And if they can, then they're not going to fight you. Like, it's okay if people disagree. Um, and I think what we've been able to do here, um, you know, the past couple of years is like put some methods together that require trust and that might require some, some faith. And it's not like a hope and a prayer. It's like built around research and it's, you know, our intuition, communication. Yeah, like, like, so if we, if we communicate and remain transparent about what we're doing, and again, like we brought up last time in our part one was keep the athlete in the center, mm-hmm. keep them in the conversation, tell them what we're doing, tell them why we're doing it. I'm not trying to throw a bunch of jargon at these athletes, but what I am trying to do is make them understand that it's not just that they are part of the process, but it is their process that we're a part of. Yeah. And so when we're bringing these methods, it's like, Hey, I am asking, I'm going to play you through some shit. That's going to make you uncomfortable. Well, I'm going to stress you every freaking day. Talking about Tay, but yeah, I'm gonna. It's. I mean, for these for these guys, they're they're brought in. You may or may not have trained the way that we're training you. You may or may not have seen some of the methods, but I guarantee you haven't seen everything we're throwing at you all at once. In addition to the cognition stuff, in addition to the recovery stuff, in addition to you know staying on regiment with food or keeping you active. Like I think I think I've seen these guys twice a week outside, but of. Uh, outside the walls and yeah. outside of training and it's, it's been really important to us to get outside the walls with them and really get into like the kind of human mode because that's where they re- that's where they reside right these athletes are humans first on every level unless you just get some there are some machine athletes <laughs> i understand you can keep pushing them but for for these guys like you gotta understand in the combine process these are kids these are kids that are going to be that are, are stressed out and are going for the biggest uh, job interview ever, being pulled right from a season and put right into a stressful situation. So, I am asking for a lot of trust. And when you do put your trust in us, and you and now you, then you have to buy in. Then you buy in. And once you buy in, then it's like, then we have to communicate because there are those valleys. Yeah. And to be in those valleys, and you know, for someone like Tay who is super athletic and we knew he was super athletic and it's like when you get a super nice car as a coach right you the job is to not crash it like if i had to think if i knew you a ferrari and said drive this across town that doesn't mean you have to drive the shit out of it it just yeah. means get it there. yeah and so our job is to get these people to the finish line without causing any issues i think that athletes often will succeed in spite of their performance coaching 
And so the way that we've decided to implement stress in a way that we know people can recover from it, this is the minimum of minimum effective dose, but more so than, than people think that you can handle. Yeah. Oh, are you going to be able to recover from that? Dude, we have the sauna, the hyperbaric, the ice, the, the hydrotherapy, the massage, the treatment, yoga, stretch, nutrition, all the supplements they need, the the speed coaching, the strength work, the this every single piece of this puzzle is geared around their success. So all the stress that we're giving them, we're also giving them all the tools to get out of that stress. Yeah. But making sure that I, I say this often to athletes is like, I am gonna see you fail. Not, not to say that I have failure sets. Like there are no lifting sets that are going to go tilt failure. But I'm going to see you fail because of the amount of effort that I need from you is higher than what you have been willing to give. Yep. And that, or give willingly, should I say. Yep. So if I see you fail, and the more often I see you fail, the less often anyone will see you fail outside these walls. Yep. No, 100%. Like it, it's, it's different because... I was telling the guys the other day, like you don't you don't train for a week and then play a game where you're not training for a period of time to play a game. You're actually training for like a track meet. So the level of stress that you'll experience will might might have a higher peak, but it won't have as much width. So there's a period these eight weeks you'll you'll never have an eight weeks like this probably ever. Like our off season training isn't isn't like this. There's other qualities and different things that we're working on, but the level of intensity during these eight weeks is, is higher than, you know, they may ever experience again as, as an athlete. Um, but that gives a lot of opportunity. Like it's a, it's an opportunity to really even change the way their, their nervous system operates. It, it gives them a chance to change the way they produce forces, gives them an opportunity to work on weaknesses. Um, so longest period of time that they'll have to work on that stuff without having to work on football. As soon as they're done this process, it switches over to how to make you a better player. So how to make you more resilient, how to make you better on the field, how to induce more skill work, um, you know, how to get better at your craft. So this part, this is why we do it. And and the reason why I continue to do combine training, even though it's not the most financially rewarding or the most time effective use of our time, um, but it's a, it's a way to test our methods. It's a way to say like, hey, like we believe in something and we're going to, we're going to take the risk in doing it with super high level athletes and let the world see the result and let the world feel the result and, and take you along the whole way and tell you everything that we're doing, which is the point of it. Um, I don't believe in, and nothing's a secret. Like I, there's companies out there that are like, we have trade secrets and all this. No, no, you don't. First of all, second of all, most of the people listen to yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, like I, I guarantee you, we, we, we know it, but why not share and have other people have success? Like, are you afraid to have other people compete with you? Like, are you afraid to to stand at the the starting line and say, well, everybody's prepared, so now I might not look like the best. I might look like I'm good within a group of other good coaches. Like, I prefer that. Like, I would prefer if every year guys at the combine got faster. Like, what we did with the offensive line last year, more guys under five seconds ever in history. Now, we might do the same with a quarterback class this year. Or, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to jinx it, but um, there's definitely, there's definitely ways that we want to prove what we're doing, um, with different types of athletes, because I, I had somebody comment, like, you just make fast guys, you just get fast guys and they run fast. Cool. Let me go get these 300 pound O-line. Okay. N- now what? 
All right, and now we got a, a mix of guys, skill guys, running backs. Running backs are the hardest to to run at the combine because the 40-yard dash is not built for running backs. Running backs would be very good at a 20, but running backs typically have very high turnover. They get up to top speed soon. They're not high-velocity runners. And they look fast. They don't typically run like long uh, 40s that are really good. Now, there are exceptions to the rule, but running backs scare the death out of me. So I was like, let's get a running back. Receivers are always hard because they usually try to run with their trunk leaned over the whole time because they might make a cut or disguise their route. So their running style doesn't usually shit the combine. Perfect. Let's get a receiver. Uh, D linemen are tough because they range from 4-3 to 5-flat to 5-2. Let's go get a D lineman. Uh, quarterbacks typically don't run fast. Let's go get more quarterbacks. Like everything was intentional um, this year. And we really want to show the world that you can stress athletes. You can um, develop relationships with athletes. You don't have to be a square coach. You don't have to be authoritarian. Um, and you can really make huge improvements in eight weeks. And to touch on the second point, um, a lot of coaches are in authoritarian positions where they're, they have dominance over athletes. And a lot of coaches I've seen now like struggle being in environments where everyone's the same. So like me and Tay both have authority, but with each other, we have respect. And it's like, can you have both? Like, can you have authority over people and respect of people? And when you get outside the training zone, can it be equal? Like, can there be no power difference in you guys? And I've seen in this field, a lot of coaches get power hungry and um, not not necessarily disrespectful, but feel like they always need to be in a power position over whoever they're around. And that's why we try to take our athletes outside of the environment and be with them and like really get to know them, really be around them. But our industry won't grow until we start looking at other industries and start looking at how we can remove ourselves from these power positions and be equal across the board, whether you're man, woman, whatever. Um, you know, if you look at other industries, you can learn a ton. Um, even project management stuff, you know? You so know, I think that's interesting, and I want to kind of throw a curveball at you. Yeah. Is that something that you have struggled with or you've seen in your own training? Uh, have you seen maybe a, a jealous tidbit or some some maybe you don't want to seed control in certain situations. Have you found that within yourself? Because I know that's something that I have struggled with in the past as well. It's like, it's pitfalls that it's not like, we're not sitting here going, hey, all you coaches need to be this and that, like as if we're perfect. It's like, you, we know these things because it's something that we struggle with. Yeah. And so our, it's hard for me as a lead coach to give over control to an entire team. Yeah. And I'm sure it's hard enough for, you know, on the, on the days that you have to be with your other crew, to trust that I'm going to get everything done. Yeah, I don't trust you. <laughs> <laughs> Subconsciously, it's not. No, 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 100%. Man, yeah, you really, you know, like if you came back on, on Wednesday, how long were they on the field? Like, I, you know, I was freaking out. <laughs> but I, it, is, it is hard though. Like I have struggled. I would say the biggest thing I struggled with at first was like, I wanted to stand out. So I, did, I wanted to be like a high level coach when I wasn't, you know what I mean? So like I wanted to do different things. I think every coach goes through that phase where it's like it's personal and it's ego based and you wanna people you want people to know you and your method. So you do try to do shit that's different and instead of just being you. You know, so there's that. And then I was like then I wanted to prove the athletes I was smarter enough so I read a lot and like use big words and stuff and realize they don't really care. Um and then I went through a phase where I didn't trust anybody. So like if you did the warm up wrong one time, I was like, you're cut, like done. Like I'm not, you know what I mean? Like I had so much, like I had a perfectionist mentality. And now I think, well, especially because I have a daughter. So I've been 
um, more empathetic, but also like more understanding and like letting people make mistakes, making the sessions fun. Like today, like I could laugh and joke around with people mid session before I was like so straight faced, you know, or like understand that guys aren't going to get hurt just because they did extra field work today. Like, yeah, it maybe wasn't part of the plan, but they're fine. But some of that came with working with Arizona last year where I was looking at how much running they were doing in practice. I'm like, and still running fast. I'm like, oh my God, these dudes can handle a lot of stuff and lifting and going to class and do whatever they do on the weekends. So I've, I've learned to like give up and submit control more, although it's still, it's still difficult at times. Um, but I think most coaches can relate to that. Like, you know, I want to grow, but you know, I don't have anybody I can trust. Like, dude, teach them, like, let them mess up because you'll learn to trust people. You know what I mean? That's one of the biggest lessons in leadership that I've that I had to learn um, is really like, hey, be okay with the people that are working with you being 85 or 90% of what you would expect. Yeah. Like, so if, if I'm in a session, I'm expecting 100%. And if I have a coach under me and I'm not able to coach the session, is am I okay with them fucking up? Maybe. Yeah. Am I okay with them being 5%? Or am I okay with them being 85% and then understanding that they may be 110%? Yeah. Fine, all right, so this guy under me may actually be better than me and then have the wherewithal to actually understand well this is something i could yeah and i've learned from people that work for me which is i i think one of those things that that it's is beautiful about this industry is that you can communicate and you can have some trust within the process and i understand like you and i have have, have trust built over years but not everybody's going to come into an environment and be able to and, and not clash with the other yeah. people that they're that they're meant to work hundred percent and so I think just being able to to look at it, it's like, yes, I do think that people should understand my methods. I, I would like to get more of my methods out there. But guess what? They're already out there. I yeah. got them from somewhere. Yeah. And where does it come from? Louis Simmons, Tudor Bampa, you know, yeah. Kyle Dietz, you look from that, Brian Mann, like all these things that I'm talking about. I'm just synthesizing my own idea about things that I've read and people that I've followed. Mm-hmm. Now, huge fan of Tudor Bampa, a huge fan of Carmelo Bosco. A huge fan of Louis Simmons and a lot of my like the conjugate programming really comes from that yeah that you know it's it's an old school strength mentality but part of my love for that came from one time in my career I really wanted to focus on functional training and and doing things that maybe were unilateral rather than bilateral and and really trying to explore these different things that were maybe we can use kettlebells instead of barbells maybe we can do this instead of that and you realize it's like, you know, I went in a way and kind of just think like I was figuring it out and I was able to eliminate pain and I was, uh, able to, to get people to, to move fast and, and move quickly and, and develop power. But as I said before, if you increase the maximum amount of strength, any sub-maximum strength is going to increase. If you're always increasing sub-maximal, not all maximal levels are going to go up. Yeah. So there comes back the complex barbell training. So using things like bilateral strength complexes, potentiation complexes, you know, eccentric bilateral training, the squat, the deadlift. I know there's people that will have their arguments about it, but squat, deadlift, and bench is always going to be very effective exercise. And it just so happens to be that those are some of the things that they test with an NFL combine. So you have to use it. Now, if you're good at that, then you can also use it to develop certain qualities and certain speed qualities and certain strength qualities. And it's, it's such a versatile tool if you know where to put it, how to complement it. Mm-hmm. No, facts. Yeah. And it's, it's also like, this will be the last thing I say, because 
well, obviously I have a part three now. So, <laughs> but um, one thing that I've noticed, like I've dived into force plates more. So I've been able to look at um, neuromuscular fatigue from what we're doing. And I could tell you right now, which is crazy to me, but week four, when they're the most tired that, you know, they're reporting on our wellness, like I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. And I'm looking at their neuromuscular fatigue scores. And it's actually the same as their baseline of when they came in. It hasn't changed, but they, they don't feel it yet, which means like when they rebound, it's going to be very hot. Like they're going to, they're going to really feel good. Um, so being able to, to understand like the nervous system's response to training, um, from the force plates, but also from a subjective score. So like, I'm sore, I'm tired on this, I'm not. Then you ask them after the session, well, I actually feel really good. Like, so sometimes it's like as coaches, like we were, I remember being very protective and very um, safe. And that safety actually was a higher risk. And, and I, I learned this working in college football because like you could, you could very easily as a strength coach say, hey, we don't sprint fast during the week, especially not in season because we don't want guys to get hurt. Well, what I found this year, I had a 35% reduction in injuries in the Pac-12 with, with Arizona because we sprinted. It, it's, not be, it's not because you're, you remove sprinting from the program to reduce risk. Is that you introduce a, a low level of stress continuously throughout the year. You don't allow that stress to disappear at all. And when it disappears, that's the risk. So even if a guy, like if a guy has an ankle issue or a hip issue or something, they go to a plan B and they do something as intense as sprinting, but it may not be sprinting. It might be something very close to sprinting or it might be resisted sprinting. It might be something that allows them to still get the contraction rate and still get the intensity or close enough to that intensity um, for that day. Maybe it's a bike. But the point is, is that my eyes have been opened. Um, we're obviously going to be doing more uh, NFL off seasons coming up. We're we're probably gonna we're probably gonna have the the most um, prolific NFL offseason class once we release this. Um, we're, we're we're honestly we're looking at changing the game and looking at changing the way people view training um, for their sport and understanding like what levels of stress they need to expose themselves to to play the sport and be injury free uh, and, and be and perform at a high level. And we have enough data collected to understand uh, what methods we need to use to, to make that happen. So by the time this podcast released, we should have released what our NFL offseason plans are, uh, location and everything like that. So um, yeah, just keep listening. We're going to keep dropping these. I mean, we did, what was the last one? Two weeks ago or a week? Yeah, so probably every two weeks we'll, we'll, we'll dive in. Um, but also submit questions. So if you guys have questions, I know there's a lot of questions in the last one. If you have questions like, Send it to us. We'll write it down and we'll cover those questions um, every time we talk, every two weeks. So I appreciate you guys. Tay, thank you. Um, let's keep going. Thank you. I appreciate you having me again. And uh, you guys will be hearing from us. Let's get it. Thank you for listening to the Less Following Podcast. If you do me two massive favors, first, please rate the podcast and give it five stars if you enjoyed. If you didn't enjoy it, please still give me five stars. <laughs> Second, please share this podcast with another coach, an athlete, or a parent who wants to learn how speed is developed. Thanks again for listening and check out the podcast description to learn more.